So, Paul, how do you tell somebody that their startup sucks? Well, let me just start by saying that I love telling people that their startups suck. It's probably the highest value thing that you can do for any person. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. So I actually am the opposite. I hate telling people that their startups suck because usually... I don't know anything about their field. I don't know anything about their area. Like so, people I, I do advising for my accelerator, and they ask me to give feedback on their pitch. And I'm like, I don't know the drone business. I, th- I think it's generally fairly easy to tell whether someone's startup sucks, and it's. I, I don't think it actually relates to the content of their thing. So, someone's startup usually will suck if they have a very strong idea of what they want to build and haven't done much validating. That's typically how I tell people that their startup sucks. That like you haven't validated this at all. All you have is an idea. There's a 99% chance that this is going to fail because everybody else's startups in the same position would fail. They validated their way into something that succeeds. I mean, that's fair. I guess so. Why do you enjoy it though? So it's just super high value. So when you tell someone that their startup sucks and and they internalize it, which I'd say happens about 60-70% of the time, they go back and they kind of look at what they were doing and realize that they've been wasting all this time, which is obviously a very sad thing. But they also, most of them at least, come out of it and say, okay, well now I need to know what to do. I'm, I'm dedicated to doing this thing and now I need to know that I need to, I need to validate, I need to build, I need to take the thing that I'm, that I'm doing and I, I'm, they take it to someone. So I was, I was talking to my friend about this and she had this idea about uh, startups by sharing hotel rooms, right? <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly, right? So I'm like, I, I can't tell you whether that idea itself is bad, but I can tell you that if you build it, it will be bad. What you should do is you should just go talk to people, stop them on the street, and ask them would they use this, and or or what would make them use this. And she did. And what she learned was that people under thirty, sometimes people over thirty, absolutely no way. Yeah. And like that was valuable feedback. I mean, I don't, I don't even like to share a hotel room with my sister anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. I mean, but like, I didn't know whether it was a bad idea. I mean, I sensed that it was a bad idea, but. Like all you have to do is is ask a bunch of potential customers. You'll figure out whether it's a bad idea. Well, I think the key is potential customers. Like I got mm-hmm. really tired of the lean hacks for like asking people in a coffee shop. Like if you asked ten I, people in a coffee shop about Circle CI, they would be like, Pfft. "I think asking people in a coffee shop is wonderful." I think it's wonderful if you're a certain kind of idea, but like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, consumer obviously. Yeah. So yeah. like, if you ask ten people in a coffee shop, not in the Bay Area, yeah, if yeah, they're yeah. in favor of automated continuous integration. Yeah, no, of course, of course not. I mean, that, that, that's obvious. But like, if you if you ask ten people in a coffee shop in Milan what they think about your fashion startup, you'd probably get some good feedback. Uh, you might not be able to understand it if you don't speak Italian, though. <laughs> um, so the reason I like I like telling them is is that just you rarely have the opportunity to change someone's life, right? But someone where when you give them successful career advice, you can literally change like their future. So people who are spending, I talked to these guys who were, they had spent like 70k of their parents' money on a startup and they had 30k left. And they were just like going the same way, they, they, they were going to lose it all. Well I guess the hard part is when you see people going off of a cliff and mm-hmm. they don't really see that cliff. They don't see the cliff. Oh, uh, 
Like um, right, right. But you you can tell them. Look, look. You you can't see it, but there's a cliff right there. Well, like um, some good friends of mine. He came to me because he's like, we got about three months of cash left. Mm-hmm. We're not able to raise money. Right. What should we be doing? And like, I ran through everything I thought they should be doing. Like, lay off half the people. Mm-hmm. Try to start charging as much as you can right now. Yeah. And they took one one piece of advice, which they did try to start charging, and they couldn't yeah. make enough money, but it was not enough to raise a, an A. Yeah, yeah. And so they had to lay off everybody and shut down. It's better that you told him that than you didn't tell him that, right? Uh, I think he was looking for a magic. Th- th- yeah, th- th- there isn't a magic thing to. I mean, validating is is as close to magic as you get. But you you have to ask those questions when there's a reasonable amount of time left. If you ask the question when you have no money left. Like, we're going to shut down today, wave your magic wand. It's like, no, there is no magic wand. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're around to tell people that their startups suck. How, how do you do this as a service? What if a listener wanted advice? I, I've thought about this. I've thought about like creating a little landing page, and you can, you can pay me $100 and I'll tell you how your, how your startup sucks. Great. It's $100, not, not because I want your $100, but because I want someone who actually cares enough to listen to my advice to pay $100. Well, we'll see by the time the show comes out if we have that up. Awesome. So why does outsourcing early development suck? Oh my God, on so many levels. Number one, you want people who are part of your company and part of your culture and talking to your customers. You mean the people who build your product yes. should be okay? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. You, they should be as close to your customers as humanly possible. This mm-hmm. is why one of the reasons, for example, that our engineers took support tickets. Right. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. uh, it was very important that yeah, they have. Ours did that for the first yeah. like, two years. So number one, you want to have rock step alignment between engineers and customers, mm-hmm. and you do that by all being co-located in the same place, so that you're all continually kind of breathing the same air, talking right. the same talk. So you don't even believe in. Uh, having a distributed team at this stage? Not super early, no. Mm-hmm. I know people who make it work, and maybe they're better than us. Like I know other p- companies who do it, but for mm-hmm. us, it was very important that we all be co-located, and okay. that we even come and like we'll work from home some days, but we'll come into the office every day. Right. So I, I had very much the same idea, like outsourcing anything. Whenever someone comes to me and asks, "How do we outsource?" I'm like, "Don't," and especially if it's a time zone that's not your time zone. I think there's plenty of things that an early stage startup could outsource, like accounting. Sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, not, but not product development. Not corp. Like right. your your business is two things when you're early, and that's building a product and building a culture. Mm-hmm. And if right. you're outsourcing your development, you're doing neither. So when you outsource your development, the whole point of early startups is validation, right? Yes. You, you've got some experiments that you want to validate, and you need to turn it around immediately. Yeah. And having a time period where you need to email someone and then you get the response the next day because they're in Ukraine or they're in India or wherever they are is is just ridiculous. And, and so so there's number one there's the lag there's right. the, there's the gap then between potential cu- customer empathy. Mm. Tell me more about that. Like for example, I was on a product where we sold to newspaper editors mm-hmm. and we tried to outsource to India. Like they just didn't really understand the culture. They don't know what a what a newspaper editor in the U.S. needs. And then you just have a lot of cultural differences. Mm-hmm. So you find it hard to explain to them what it is that you're really trying to build. Cultural differences about like I found in particular, America has a very adversarial cultural. Sometimes they'll just say, "Hey, that idea is bullshit," or "What do mm-hmm. you mean?" or "That doesn't make sense." Okay. Where, versus other cultures where they don't want to challenge authority, where they'll go away for two weeks and come back, and you're like, "This isn't what I wanted at all." Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, "Well, I, didn't, I was afraid to ask." Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to look dumb and ask. Gotcha. And so if there's no connection, if they don't see you every day in the office. That sort of thing that they're not going to, they're not going to have the ability to talk to you and, and ask basically. 
even that that there's a cultural gap. And so like the the worst case was somebody said they were gonna build like um what was it like an Apache five updater. Mm-hmm. And after three weeks, we're like, hey, where, where's the code? And it turned out he'd written zero code. He had no idea how to do it, but he was too ashamed to admit it. <laughs> wow. So cultural differences, time lag differences, cultural within the team and then within the customer itself, speed. Mm-hmm. So the, big, the biggest thing for me isn't, isn't necessarily speed so much, but it's, it's sort of tangentially related. I get startups that that ask me like, "Oh, I have this really good idea. I just need to raise a bit of money so that we can outsource the development and and they can build the thing." Uh, and the the problem is that what they're hoping to happen is that they will get back a product, a, 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 yeah. a working product. But the working product is not useful anyway because you need to keep iterating and you need to build that into your company that we understand the product space, we understand the you know, where things have gone right, where things have gone wrong. And the optimal solution for outsourcing is they actually do what you tell them and reply with the thing that you wanted them to build. And that the best case isn't sufficient either. Because the thing that you wanted to build is right today until until you talk to customers. And then it's wrong tomorrow. And then you need to go do that again. And you you spent your your 25k or 50k or 100 k on development and you you got the product back and the product almost definitionally can't be the right product. Yeah, and there, there, there's so much last minute fit and finish. So I so mm-hmm. I used to be a spec writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I would write requirements and like invariably there's interpretation when it comes to a spec, mm-hmm, right. and, and the reaction at one point was like, "Let's try to put more and more into the spec until basically course, they course, collapse yeah. under their own weight and yeah. nobody can lift them." Yeah, but you're still missing. You may as well write the code at that point. Yeah, but you still miss a lot of nuance in the final steps. Right, right, right. Like, hey, we have all the spec, but when we started to put it together, like, hey, maybe we need this other use case, mm-hmm, or like we noticed yeah, that yeah. like there's no type checking or unit tests in the spec, and so when you start to try to actually build it, you realize that these two things are contradictory, and then what are you going to do? Oh yeah, or just like all the fit and finish stuff, or like, what if you realize that there's actually this corner case that you design a lot for, but that you don't need anymore? Mm-hmm. So to finish this out, what would you say to a startup which told you we're we're planning to outsource? I would say, what is your core competency? And I, I come back to what I said before that your core competency of a, a startup should be building a culture and building a product, and that by outsourcing building a product, you're not doing either. So Paul, what do you what do you like about chocolate so much? I, th- I think it's sugar. I think I'm fundamentally addicted to sugar, <laughs> and I think, as far as I can tell from everything I've read, sugar is is a poison, and you really shouldn't eat sugar. But my three favorite foods are ice cream, pastries, and chocolate, and I don't think there's there's very much I can do about this, unfortunately. So it's funny because as I've gotten older, I've started like sugar less and less. Like I was a little kid who literally, when I went to church, I would leap up at the end of the service and run down the aisle because mm, there's like donuts downstairs or something. Yeah, because my my parents didn't have sweets, but mm-hmm. there would be cookies, so I would like right. weave around all the old ladies, like hugging each other and like dive into the cookie jar. So I think I had the opposite thing. But now mm-hmm. I, I I don't really like sweets anymore. Like. So I, I think when I was a kid, I didn't have ready access to sweets. Oh, it was only at church. Oh, only at church. That's okay. why I was so excited, is because every Sunday I got a cookie. Right. Well, we, we we didn't necessarily have like we weren't sugarless, but I think once I once I sort of had my own money and I was just like, I can buy chocolate anytime I like now. It's like when you, you're an adult, you can suddenly buy bacon anytime you like, and it's it's not very good. Oh, well, I, I did like sugar a lot as a kid. Like I remember, I would buy pixie sticks. Which to me now seem revolting. Like, have you ever? Do they have pixie sticks? No, it doesn't ring a bell. It's literally a stick full of powdered sugar. Oh, so I, I don't even. I don't even like just pure sugar. I like 
milk chocolate, and pe- people complain a lot about milk chocolate. People are like on the dark chocolate bandwagon a lot these days. All the all the hippies with their with their coffee <laughs> and, and their strange mustaches. They, they, they like dark chocolate, but I think dark chocolate isn't sweet enough for me. I like a really creamy, sweet chocolate. So it's the sugar you like. It's it's the sugar, yeah. yeah, yeah. Also, I, I gave it up for a month, and I had withdrawal symptoms. I had like headaches and lucid dreams and nightmares and waking up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night. Did you ever have a lucid dream within a lucid dream? You know, I may have had. I have those, and they're really freaky. That that is fucking freaky. No, have, it happens to me. You know, like when you're, you're frequently. Like, yeah. Uh, I do have dreams where like I'm. I realize that they're a dream, yeah. and I can sort of make a decision as to whether I'm going to stop. But they're usually not about chocolate. Well, the the the, the freakiest dreams are you realize you're in a dream and you wake up. But you're really still in a dream. You wake up from the dream in the dream. Interesting. And this is completely unrelated to sugar, because you, from the sound of it, don't go nuts on sugar. Yeah. So I think your lucid dreams are independent of sugar. They only happen when I give up sugar for a month, which is something I need to do routinely to like scale back my sugar consumption. So you're saying if I eat more sugar, I would stop having these weird dreams? Well, I was confused as to whether it was sugar withdrawal or whether it was theobramine withdrawal. Say that again. Theobramine. It's the it's the caffeine like active ingredient in chocolate. I learned something new today. Yeah, and it's addictive in the same way that caffeine is, and it has a lot of the same properties. And I had basically coffee like withdrawal symptoms. It's interesting. So um, the Mormons used to be a huge customer of mine mm-hmm. um, when I was at a different company. Did you say the Mormons? Yes. Okay. So the Church of Latter Day Saints. Mm-hmm. So they have very strict rules. The, the church itself was your customer. Yes. The local church or the the no. grand organization in the Salt Lake City. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, they have a ton of content that they want to manage. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to drink alcohol mm-hmm. or caffeine. Yeah. So the salesperson would bring them. Chocolate. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just like you bring me chocolate for every podcast episode. <laughs> well, you know, I got to bring sweetening them up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess that's true. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for wearing your launch darkly t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. Well. Yeah. So chocolate. It's funny because I could take it or leave it, but you seem to love it. Yeah, no, I, I love it. Today's brand, uh, Nirvana Belgian Chocolates, organic Belgian milk chocolate with speckleuse cookie. This is, I think, the best one we've had so far. Really? Yeah. So this this gets into the whole topic of um, customer gifts, mm-hmm. which I, I've started to get as we we moved up the food chain. I I get gifts from VCs. Oh, what do you get? I got a jacket from DFJ. What? I got a Chromecast from Bessemer. What? Like like, like some, for some, for for the holidays or? Yeah, and, and Bessemer actually sent me a like a rickshaw carrier bag. You got a jacket from DFJ? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a little too big for me, but it's like a, a big puffy. So the thing you you get from Uniqlo. That I, like, s- I saw Chirag wearing one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel so. Is that like what you get after you get a B round? Um. Well, they did our A. They did our A too. Well, but they only just did your A. Yeah, but like they did. Maybe, maybe you'll get it next Christmas. I'm gonna I'm gonna text my VC. Did you did you close you close before Christmas? Oh yeah. Oh, and they didn't send you a gift. No. Rude. Well, they sent us um they sent us hoodies. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. So they sent us hoodies. Like it's pretty standard. Like I actually have this. Burgeoning collection of hoodies. Do you have a, a shelf of startup T-shirts and a shelf of startup hoodies? Uh, I try to be pretty vigilant. Like I, will, I don't. So the reason why I always ask people if they want a T-shirt before I give it to them is because, like, otherwise you just end up with hundreds of T-shirts. Right, right, right. Like New Year's last year, I took sixty shirts to Goodwill. Yeah, oh, I give away or get rid of or something every. Like, if you're a startup and you have ill-fitting T-shirt, it's like no one wants to wear that. Yes. Yeah. I don't understand why why people make shitty 
like the American Apparel that that like half the startups are are, are a wonderful fit shirt, like the fifty fifties, and just the if you're making like this shitty cotton, it feels awful, looks awful. No, a big thing for us is that people like our shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, same with circle shirts. Yeah, no, it was, oh. it was actually really cool. So, um, John, my co-founder, is our chief t-shirt officer. Mm, no, right, right. Because he'd been at Atlassian, so he could tell. He's like, okay, here's the kind of shirts we need to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really wanted to make a t-shirt. And we, we meant to do this, but we, we never did. Um, from the "It's the Future" mm-hmm. thing, put it in a container and continuously deliver that shit. <laughs> there needs to be a t-shirt. Yeah. It's funny, like um, I wanted to do them yellow, and mm-hmm. John's like navy. Everybody wears navy. He's right. He's right. You, you can have some form of gray, some form of black, some form of navy, but like yellow is not is not a color anyone wears. Uh, I wear yellow. Um, yeah, it's funny. It makes me really happy. Like I went over to hang out with my friend Matt, and he was wearing a launch darkly t-shirt. Nice. And like even like, Ed but it was, wasn't yellow. No, it was navy. And of even Ed, even our friend Ed wears his launch darkly mm, shirt. Yeah, yeah. And and I wear mine all the time. I'm wearing it right now. Oh yes, you are, and it looks lovely on you. So chocolate. Good vendor gift or bad vendor gift? Strong vendor gift. Perishable though. Yeah, chocolate lasts a while. The problem is that they might be allergic to dairy or sugar. Yeah. What else did I get? I got coffee. I got wine. Co- coffee definitely perishes. Well, wine is a good gift. I feel in San Francisco, you you give people whiskey instead. Really? Yeah, like you're giving someone a nice whiskey. I don't drink whiskey. Um, well, my my friend my friend worked at Stripe and and the Collisons just get all sorts of gift like just. Baskets and, and so like you can kind of wander over to their desk and if you want a really nice whiskey just like take it because what are they going to do with their hundredth bottle of really nice whiskey? Yeah, I don't know. Well, so it is interesting though that um, I think we're a Circle customer. We've never gotten a gift. Circle doesn't really do gifts to people. We do some if, if people have been very helpful. We had one vendor who sent us cake. Oh wow! I, I wouldn't say that they screwed us, but the bug in their application completely screwed us. This is a story that we still can't really tell, but like. As a result of them, we ended up doing something really bad accidentally to customers. This would be a really interesting story if there are any details. In it I'm, I'm going to wait until people go public. And yeah, then, and then, this is yeah. like this one time this bad thing happened, but I can't yeah. tell you any details. Anyway, Great in, story, Paul. In the end, they sent us cake, and it was happily ever after. Anyway, Paul. Why do flat organizations suck? I could tell you about 20 million different reasons why flat organizations suck. But basically, they're founded on, I think, this incorrect premise that hierarchy is bad. Yeah, that hierarchy is bad and should be avoided at all costs. Right, right. And there's a sort of a school of thought that like everything that engineers don't really like is bad, and so we should cut them out. Meetings uh, are bad. Meetings are bad, hierarchy is bad, process is bad, project management is bad, managers are bad. It's, it's like a Dilbert cartoon where it's like right, right, right. Every, and, everybody around me is pointy-headed. Right, and and I think it originates because everyone has really bad experiences with a bad manager, with a bad organization, with you know something that was poisonous or toxic, uh, which and, and so that that's definitely true. But when you see it done really well, or when you see the kind of logical implication of flatness, and when, when you when you try to really make it work, and then you're like, oh. I don't really know what to do now to solve this problem, and then you end up sort of reinventing hierarchy in a flat-ish kind of way. So I got happy hour with some friends yesterday, and um, we were talking about if you claim you have a flat org, you have a hierarchy, but it's just unacknowledged, right? So the, there's and unofficial, this... which is even more awful because people mm-hmm. don't know how to get stuff done. So there's this like, like we want to we want to this person is doing a bad job. Who do I complain to? Mm-hmm. We want to hire four more people. Right. 
or this business unit isn't doing well. There's an essay called The Tyranny of Structurelessness, and it's about the sort of a women's sort of feminism movement in in in, in the seventies and and maybe earlier, where they deliberately went for a structurelessness organization. I, I think the idea was that part of the the problem of the patriarchy is 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 hierarchy, and they ended up just having tyranny is the word that they used, yeah. and and it came about that just. Power wasn't earned anymore. Power was sort of like politicked in. Yeah, it you cool. it became who you knew. People formed cliques and power like formed into those cliques. And in order to get anything done, it all became about how like who who you knew in order in order to make anything happen. And when you hear about let's, let's say GitHub famously yeah. had that had that flat organization. And, and what you hear from insiders at GitHub is yeah, any engineer could work on anything that they found important if they were friends with the co-founders, or you know, maybe one of the first ten engineers. Yeah, and then and then it's just it's it's I liked your word poisonous because there is a structure, there is a hierarchy, it's just underacknowledged. So I spent some time trying to figure out how to how to work around this because we we really tried hard for flat at Circle, and the answer that I had was uh, areas of responsibility, and that's Asana's. Sort of form of flatness, or they have a little bit of flatness. And the idea is that basically everyone in the organization has things that they are responsible for. And there's a document that says this person is the number one person who knows about t shirts, or the number one person who knows about this product area. And they're simultaneously responsible and knowledgeable about, about that. An owner. An owner is is a good way of thinking about it. You can build all sorts of processes around how ownership transitions and and or how you can take ownership or, or that sort of thing. The inputs and outputs, right? And I think it's a very good idea if you're if you're into the flatness because one of the things that's missing from flatness is is ownership and accountability. Yeah. And this institutes a some amount of ownership and accountability. And accountability, I think, is is the essential thing that that flatness doesn't really encourage. I think flatness is not the same as. Organization. I'm not sure what you mean by that. So I just took uh, Michael Deering's course on management. Oh, really? I, I I did his finance course. It was amazing. It, his course was so good. Right. Um, we read Andy Grove's book, which I love. Mm-hmm. And I because I, I I'm an engineer. This is high output management. Yeah. Have you read it? Uh, I've started to read it several times. So it's it's great. I mean, you can borrow my copy now, but um, it's great because he he looked at management as a system, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm a systems engineer, and he says the job of a good manager is to get high output out of their organization. Right. Right. And he invented OKRs, right? In that book, uh, pretty much, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I liked it. I mean, he was very much pro managers. You, your responsibility is to make sure that your organization performs, mm-hmm. which I think a flat. What you just said is kind of missing that. That like, right. who, who who tunes all these pieces? Well, the the assumption is with flat is that everyone that you hire is amazing and knows exactly what what needs to get done, and perhaps that that survives. You know, at five people, maybe as far as ten people. But there comes to the point where the overhead of trying to understand what you need to do is so high that it just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, I mean, well, and then there's there's things that need to have some sort of higher function, mm-hmm. like um, what three people are we going to hire next year? Mm-hmm. Or you know, w- w- what is the product roadmap? You can have ten people each decide what their own version of the product roadmap should be, and the end result is that no product roadmap will be built. Or yeah. 10 10% of a product roadmap will be built and and everyone's going in different directions and no one is on the same page. Well, it's kind of the, the bizarre theory of management then. So, so actually I think this is responsible for this. When you say bazaar, I am thinking of the uh, yeah. yeah. Um so Eric Raymond's yeah. essay and 
people have this open source development methodology, right, in their mind. Developers understand how open source works. You you come up with a pull request, code talks, talk walks, or whatever that thing is. And it's just complete crap because <laughs> you need to have everyone on the same page. And this is why so many open source products are shit because they don't have a single person who's saying, this is the page that we're on, this is what's getting built next, don't bring me your shitty pull request, bring me something that's on the product roadmap. Well, and even more than that, I mean, we, we it's, it's very then painful to that person. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I, I There's remember- nothing worse. And this is where, where I lost a lot of, almost a lot of friends and certainly a lot, a lot of. Um, Employee love is that I would kill their PRs just before they're ready to ship. And you spent so I mean, right? They they spent so long on them, and just I hadn't gotten in my head the idea that that we need to decide what to build before we spend a whole bunch of time on it. Yeah, because it's extremely expensive. Then, and I mean, not not just expensive for time, mm-hmm. but expensive in opportunity cost and employee right. morale. Right. I mean, this this happened to me. Um, we built something for several months. We went to present it to the the VP of product. He's like, "This is shit. I don't want to ship it." Right. Crushing. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. The the way around that is to take the product roadmap, you know, the the direction that the company wants to go, find the bit of it that's most exciting to you, and then and then take ownership of that. And then when you ship that, you already know. And obviously, you're not just shipping it; you're bringing it back in multiple steps and getting feedback along the way. There's a really good article by a guy called Sean Lynch, who was a PM at. Um, I know Sean. Yeah, you, you know Sean. So he was a PM at uh, Dropbox, and he said that one of the things that really enabled them to grow was the shared vocabulary around how to ship products. Yeah. And they had they called it phase zero, phase one, and phase two. Yeah. And in, in phase zero, you're kind of getting rough alignment on on kind of what is to build, but we don't want to hear any of your bullshit about like the words are wrong. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a that's a phase two problem. The phase two is the time that you sweat all the details, and phase one is somewhere in between. Yeah, I mean, so I learned this back when I was a consultant. So you know, I would have projects and. We would be very careful about not putting too much detail into wireframe because mm-hmm. as soon as right because once people figure the wireframe looks done, then they think it's done, and then they fixate on that, and then you're like, yeah. no, 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 this was just trying to get consensus. So yeah. I mean, I know that um, I know you hate waterfall, but I think waterfall is actually very good if you think of it as let's let's have checkpoints before we continue to invest in something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's definitely some value to that. You admitted there is value in waterfall. I, I admit there's value in checkpoints. Can can we just like. No, no, because I did not agree that waterfall is good. I, I agreed I, that the principle of you know knowing what it is you're building before you're building it. Can I just say that that's not actually what waterfall means? I, generally, that was the intent of it: was mm. that you have different phases and you you have checkpoints of is this ready to go to the next phase? Yes, but each of those phases was like you know the, the, there's the spec phase and there's the engineering phase. Whereas when we when we talk about like what Dropbox was doing, there's engineering in each phase. There's this customer validation. This feedback. There's not a concept that we know what we're building, and we're just going to like drive that through five phases to the end. So I, I did experience waterfall, and there was some extent of like you would get to a different phase, and he'd be like, "Hey, we're we're not going to drive this to the end." So what you're saying is there's good waterfall and bad waterfall. I think waterfall. We've talked about this before. I yeah, think yeah, wa- yeah. waterfall gets maligned, and what mm-hmm. it was trying to prevent was what you just said of like, um, if you allow the wrong side of feedback at the wrong time, it just it can be very destructive. So it, it seems like. It is possible that there's just like there's a good waterfall, but maybe ninety nine percent of waterfall is bad waterfall. I think the prob- probably the same is true in flat. I think what you just said resonated a lot about GitHub and how the way they thought the open source world worked mm-hmm. 
which was people just contributing. If it's good, it gets in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like when you look at it, it's like no, there's actually a lot of hurt feelings. Right, right. And the same with their org structure. They're like, well, good ideas will win. It's like, well, win what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I don't get along with somebody or if there's a disagreement, who who do I go to? I think it is possible to do flat well, but I think the problem is that almost every attempt to do flat well has failed. Well, let's let's define what you mean by flat. That's a really good point because I think most people don't define what they mean by flat. And this was a problem at Circle that that everyone had their own version of what flat was and what flat meant and to some it was like no one will tell me what to do and to some it was like everyone takes responsibility for their own thing and some was like ideas will find their way to the top. Yeah, it's it's like um you you should read Andy Grove's book but he talks about how um this guy didn't really he hated the intel style which mm-hmm. was very um for lack of you not as an insult but management driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you have people who who approve decisions. Mm-hmm. And who coordinate between groups? And he's like, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go to this other company where I can do whatever I want to do. Mm-hmm. And he came back at six months. They asked him why, and he's like, because everybody at that company did whatever they wanted to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so nothing was going. Right. Everybody was just cowboying. So there's there's this idea that in your startup you basically get one innovation, right? And and the number one innovation that you should be doing is your product. Right. Any time spent innovating on management structure and you know many other things is is time that that could be spent innovating on product. I initially thought I completely disagree with you, but now I circled back and agree with you. So we talked about this in another episode, but I think you're you're doing two things when you're a startup. Mm-hmm. You're defining your product and you're defining your culture. Right. And I think where people go awry is when they try to be too innovative. Yeah. You can have a little bit of innovation. You can you can decide that there's going to be a pool table rather than the traditional ping pong table. <laughs> right. But if you spend too much time innovating, and if you spend too much time on that innovation rather than on your product innovations, you're, you're probably going to end up in a bad place. Well, like Zappos is kind of struggling with this right now. Mm-hmm. Their holacracy thing. Yeah. yeah, it did them well for many years. I don't. They didn't have holacracy. They tried. Oh, didn't to, they? No. Yeah. They've tried to implement holacracy and right. It's well, like Google did the same thing. They fired all their PMs in like 2001. Uh, tell, tell me more. Well, I, I, as I understand it, Larry, who was CEO at the time, said that there's too much distance between the CEO and uh, and the engineers, so he fired all the PMs. <laughs> sounds and like, then this sounds shortly, like a line from Shakespeare, like, first thing we do. <laughs> <laughs> and then very shortly afterwards, Eric Schmidt was brought in as the CEO to be Larry's like adult supervision. <laughs> and then? Then they hired PMs later. <laughs> yeah, this reminds me of... Um, it was at a company that acquired got acquired as a product manager, and this other company had no product managers. So it was like, did they take them all out and shoot them? Like, where the product? <laughs> well, it could be like Circle. They just we we just never hired PMs. But you have them now. We we have them now because that was lunacy. It was a limitation. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think everybody has a different idea of what flat means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you heard of the Heroku way? So this is something I've heard from several prominent early Heroku people that. They had this sort of unspoken thing about how stuff was done at Heroku. It was the Heroku way, but no one ever defined what the Heroku way was. And whenever some team would go off and do things, their opinion of the Heroku way, basically they would get like subtly corrected by by Adam. And it turned out that the Heroku way was really like Adam's vision. <laughs> so tell me, what was the Heroku way? No one ever knew. It was like everyone had their own idea of what the Heroku way was. It, was. it was like flat. It was it was undefined, and it was just a disaster. Yeah, I mean, because ultimately that's very harmful because you you don't know what you're working towards. Right, right. And you you um you develop a culture. We 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 talked about this before. Like um, 
if you have animals that get an unexpected pattern for food, mm-hmm. they basically go insane. Right, right, right. So you, you think flat is like insanity for engineers? Sometimes, if like what you said of like I did all this work, I brought all this code, yeah, 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 yeah. and you don't like it, like it doesn't ship. Engineers yeah. go insane when things don't ship. And well, when that happens three times, you're like, what am I doing wrong? You start to burn out. Yeah, and you start to say like, fuck this, like why yeah. do I come to work every day? Exactly, right, and that that very succinctly is why flat sucks. Okay, so you wanted to talk about Hacker News comments, but I've no idea what you want to say about Hacker News comments. What do you think about Hacker News comments? Modern comments? They are alternatively phenomenally shit and utterly amazing. So I, I've noticed in particular, like Hacker News has gotten redditified. There's the whole bunch of like really low value like quips that actually are are what make Reddit really good. Um, if you're if you're deep in the Reddit community, as I once was, I had a I had a very strong Reddit addiction for many years. As a poster or as a reader? Um, almost almost entirely as a reader. Yeah, well, the, the, those are two different things. Yeah, but it's a very it's very funny, and you you often get like the the high quality humor like voted to the top. It's kind of low quality humor. It's it's like puns and memes and and, and that sort of thing. Hey, I, yeah, let's not get started about puns. Uh, but it's it's like Reddit memes, right? It, it's someone says something that, that's hilarious because it's a pun on something the entire community understands, and people are trying to bring this to Hacker News, and it's just it's just utter low value there. The thing that's amazing about Hacker News is that people who really understand their shit, like the, the, there'll be a comment about, oh, you know, Google did this and it was terrible, and someone's like, oh, I worked at Google during that period on that team, and here's here's how it actually went down. Yeah. Or someone will say something about a programming language, and then like. Walter Bright, who who wrote D, will like come along and say, "Well, here's here's how we actually think about this this thing," or like the Rust team, or you know, all, all that shit. Or like when um, Atlassian acquired Trello, right? Like the Trello CEO like was jumping in on threads, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and Spolsky comments on there, and like yeah. So I I think a lot of the value of Hacker News is that it's sort of the the community water cooler, and everyone. Who's in the community is on Hacker News and reads Hacker News, and there's nothing that you can't get to the top of Hacker News without the people involved noticing and often getting involved. Yeah, it was funny. Like, um, I was at a Microsoft event, and the VPs care. Like, one of the right. VPs was proud that like they got on Hacker News a couple times for some big news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that used to be a thing for startups, and now it's it's a. I, I was talking to to some people at, at Google, and they're like, "What are your goals for this launch?" It's like, "Well, we wanted to be number one on Hacker News." But I think. I think it's kind of a vanity metric in some ways. It is and it isn't. Like if you if you do something which doesn't rate in some way on Hacker News and it's for the developer community or for the sort of startup community, is there really like is it really that much value? Well, I guess something that we talk about is do VP of engineering at, you know, non Silicon Valley, if that's mm-hmm. your market, read Hacker News. Should they or do they? Do they? That's a good question. I, I would say they probably do. So I moved to New York recently. Everyone there reads Hacker News just as much as. Well, you're you're. I mean, not to pick on you, Paul, but you're a little bit probably in your own little a little Silicon Alley bubble there. So it was like it was, so that the people Paul knows. Yeah, yeah. I, I I went into the into the office one day, and people said to me, "Oh, you're number one on Hacker News," and that was people who I didn't know, but they knew who. I don't I don't know how this happened or why I'm talking about this, but like I, I had a thing where I was number one in Hacker News earlier this year, and like everyone knows because everyone reads it. What were you at number one for? It was for it's the future. Oh, it, it, re- it was yeah, resurfaced. Yeah, sometime in, in like August or September. That's a good article. Yeah, it's, it's good. I liked it. If anybody who missed it, they can um, 
you know, go read it or check out our podcast. Yeah, we, we did a whole podcast about it. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a good example of it that, that you see the people, you know, in the comments on that, you see a bunch of people who really understand the topics and can really dig in and, and sort of explain how we got there. But also like it's it's you know marred with like low quality comments and, and people who are being assholes and, and it's get, it's getting a lot worse as well. It's been getting a lot worse for like seven years. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that sometimes there could be people, um, just like with any anonymous board, you get people with access to grind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even without access to grind, I feel that like th- th- there needs to be some form of curation that is more th- than there currently is. So like there's there's upvotes and there's downvotes, but the sh- there's there's too much shit for the downvotes to deal with it effectively. There's too much. A standard comment that you get on Hacker News is people who. Just like take the worst possible reading of what just happened, or bring up the like, you know, if if Google launches a product, there's going to be a comment guaranteed that like, oh, how long till they shut this down? I wonder if someone made an open source version of this, so so they they don't don't shut this down, and that brings no value to to the conversation on a particular topic. Wait, that um, that somebody will that Google will build a competitor that no, that Google will shut it down. We'll shut down whatever service they build or, or acquire or maybe maybe you get acquired by Google and someone be like oh great how do I export this oh I see what you're saying yeah. oh that somebody got a, I didn't see. so your your use cases like somebody got acquired by Google how long till Google shuts it down exactly I mean that that is the sort of comment that you would see on Hacker News and it's it's not it's not value to discuss that for the seventeenth time in a row yeah I mean so the one that touches a little nerve with me is um you know people make fun of our company right right right. I mean, you're you're like a bullion flag as a service. It's it's kind of ludicrous. We're case management at scale, dude. Case management at scale. Okay. I I had a friend in college who who would make fun of of our like um, undergrad dissertations, and he'd be like, "Okay, well, well, you fixed a bug. You wrote a sorting algorithm." You know, like just give very like small denigrating descriptions of, of what we actually do, and I feel Hacker News does that quite a bit. Well, so I'll say though, at the beginning it annoyed me, and now I love it. Really? Yeah. You you love people being dicks on Hacker News? No, I love people making fun of what we're doing because uh, like, because it means they don't really understand the value of it and well, they won't compete. Well, Increases your moat. Or or that um they're like oh my intern will build this in a weekend with. Well, they're you know with two arms behind their back. And yeah, I'm like, great. They're gonna build a really shitty implementation. In a it's year. wonderful to have the the conversation after they build that. It's like all of a sudden you don't really need to convince them of the value of your product anymore. Yeah. Like CI is totally a thing that you could totally build in a weekend, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, except for like why? Except yeah. for making it actually work. Yeah. yeah. So I used to you know be like, oh, people don't think this is important. Now I'm mm-hmm. like, great. That's fine. So the the problem that I have is not is not that they make these comments, right? It's it's that they just continually make the same thing. Yeah, you know, I, I feel that ever since the you know Dropbox launch where someone said, "Oh, I can build this with with rsync and whatever," yeah. like, there, there hasn't been a single comment like that that has brought any value. Well, I mean that, that's that's what I again. So we we announced our a round of funding, and, and like several people went off on protracted rants. Right. Exactly. And and that's just. Just no, I mean like against like they're like this is so t-. like of course we're developers we could build everything mm-hmm. but why like, and is, like, is your argument that there's just little value to having that discussion? No, I thought it was good that like people are starting to fight back and be like you know. But even then, like so, I, I agree. Great that they're fighting back, but like why have this discussion again? And I, I I see comments on Hacker News where I'm like I can write a response that says why you're wrong because I've seen it and I'm just like. Why? Like, where, where is the value with arguing with strangers on the internet? 
If you've gotten tired of Hacker News, well, have you gotten? Tired I haven't got of... tired of Hacker News. I've because the good stuff on Hacker News is still really good. Like, what, what would you consider? Uh, what would you consider good stuff? Where someone gives like a, an insightful anecdote about the time they they worked on on that thing, or where someone who works on the language itself, uh, or the, you know whatever the, the the topic is, comes in and answers questions on it. And where where those questions are asked in good faith, and where someone's like, "I'm interested in how you dealt with the technical challenges of X," as opposed to like, "Oh, this is bullshit. I, you know, you, you, your product is shit because X." And then they have to answer from a defensive position rather than everyone trying to like learn stuff from each other. So you like actually that that's it. Hacker News is great because. It's a community learning from each other, and Hacker News is shit when people are subverting that for like status and points. So you like the core, not the Reddit. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.